what I need. Welcome to the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I am Boomer. Hi, I'm Allie. And we are recording in three separate locations over the internet. We are here to talk about films. We all take turns writing for SwampFlex.com. And we're all sipping different teas right now. I kind of want to hear what, what tea everyone's drinking, because I just heard that we're all doing that. Oh, I'm, I'm drinking a raspberry hibiscus. I've got mint medley. Ooh. And I've got something called perfectly mint, which is like black tea with mint. Uh, and it was called plantation mint until recently, and they decided that was no longer a good idea. Oh, that's my <laughs> so- favorite. I make that by the pitcher. It is not a good idea. <laughs> I don't like the mint medley because there's too much peppermint. I prefer my mint of a more spearmint variety. And plantation mm-hmm. mint, or formerly known as plantation mint, is more of a spearmint mint blend. So I am not a big fan of mint medley. Like, it'll do because I like peppermint tea, but I really love mint magic. I've never heard of that one. It's got a wizard and a unicorn on the box, so it's the best. I am intrigued. I'm very happy that Bigelow has made the decision to stop using the name Plantation Mint, because I'll be honest, I always felt very guilty buying it. Yeah, it's just that the tea was that good that I got over that feeling. Um, So yes, I'm also glad that they changed just to make me feel better every time I go to the grocery store, because I never stopped buying it, even though it always felt icky. Okay, I'm going to take a a sip. Maybe it'll be super loud. Mmm... (laughs) <laughs> That's good podcasting. Uh, <laughs> well, now that we've got the tease out of the way, what movies have we been watching lately? Well, I have done gone and done a classic boomer thing and really only seen one thing since we last met. And it was actually something I had already seen, which is not to keep using the word seen, but things heard and seen, which I mentioned briefly the first time that I kind of very passively watched it, had it on in the background. And I remember being kind of fascinated by it and thinking that I needed to go back and do a rewatch. And I've honestly been working on trying to get copy down for it for a while, but it's a hard movie to really talk about or describe, even though I I did thoroughly enjoy it. It's Amanda Seyfried and um, the guy from (laughs) um, The Nevers, and uh, he's English. Um, hold on. Uh, James Norton, who was in The Nevers, and he was also in um, Little Women as John Brooke. Okay. This film is set in 1980, so it has a lot of 70s style to it, because that's like that end of the decade. And this movie's reviews are horrible. It has negative reviews almost entirely across the board, and it's kind of shocking to me, because I I guess... Like, derivativity, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. Because to me, it feels kind of fresh and original. But it's also a movie that is completely lacking in jump scares, which is like the problem that everybody's been fed over the years. So basically, uh, it's George and Catherine Clare. They're a married couple. He has, you know, for years been taking money from his parents. Uh, they have a young daughter who's like nine or so. The film opens on, like, her last birthday party in the city in Manhattan before they move to upstate New York to a fictional college, you know, liberal arts college town um, in the Hudson Valley area, the real Hudson Valley area. And George has gotten this job as uh, an instructor um, on, like, art history, particularly about some real 
actual painters who were part of the Hudson Valley School. And those painters were all sort of spiritualists who were really interested in like the work of Emanuel Swedenborg. And they're mostly paintings by Thomas Cole, who was part, he was actually like one of the founders of the Hudson River School. And it's, you know, it's, it's this sort of romantic artistic movement that's largely influenced by spiritualism the same way that, you know, the prayer to the great cloud of unknowing and, and various other like romantic poets were influenced in that way. And he really like George, who is our antagonist essentially is just, he's such a control freak over Catherine. And she also has her own control issues. Cause we learned really early on that um, she has uh, anorexia nervosa and she also does purge anytime that she does eat something. So he's like initially comes off as being legitimately concerned about like, why aren't you eating? Why aren't you doing this? What about the shakes that the doctor gave you? But as it goes on, you sort of get more of an insight into all of these little things that you learn about their family and about their relationship with each other that sort of take on new meaning as you learn more and more about how many lies George has told over the course of this relationship and marriage. Like, And it's so much deeper than you could have imagined. The things that he has taken credit for and the things that he has, you know, uh, led her to believe about his past and even about their relationship. And it's it's got a really great cast F. Murray Abraham is in it. He is the dean of the college. And Karen Allen uh, plays like the wife of the local sheriff. And she's the real estate agent who initially sells them the house and later gives Catherine some information about the history of the house that George had kept from her. And the real standout performance to me was Rhea Seahorn, which looking through her credits, I I can't really seem to find anything else that I would have seen her in, but she steals the show as um, the (laughs) adjunct weaving instructor at the college. But her husband is also like an instructor there and like the local sort of weed farmer. And she slowly becomes more and more suspicious of George and shares these suspicions with him. And all of that doesn't even get into the fact that like, the spiritualists in this area are right. Like there are spirits in the house that George and Catherine are living in, but they're almost tertiary to like the actual narrative about gaslighting and like spousal secrecy. So even though that ghost element is part of it, I think that that's probably what made people want to see it. And because of its larger irrelevance to like the meat of the emotional like beats of the story, I think that's probably why it's gotten so many negative reviews, but even like professional critics have, have called it derivative, but I actually found it very striking, um, especially in its use and incorporation of like, you know, arts culture and sort of the, not even really conflict, but sort of interaction between people who live in a small community because they're associated with the like liberal arts college that's nearby versus the people who are like the, you know, the farmers and salt of the earth people who just live there. You know, Catherine's very invested in making friends with the people who live in town and George as part of his larger 
pretentiousness about himself finds that the very idea kind of scoff worthy so it's on netflix it's got a lot of negative reviews but i really enjoyed it it's a slow burn but it 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 does feel a little bit longer than it is it actually is a tighter runtime than you would think just watching it because it does kind of there's a lot of and i will say that there are some technical problems with it that i found kind of shocking but i know that that's not what the bad faith critics are talking about there's a scene towards the end where there's a very noticeable color shift and i rewound it to see if it was just something about the buffering there's a very noticeable color shift in a couple of places and a couple of places where there's some really bad like dubbing where obviously they re-recorded a line or something and and the 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 sync is off in a very noticeable way so there it does have its flaws but narratively i i really liked it so big recommend from me the alley what have you been watching so i've been back in school and in an effort to uh get better at spanish i've been taking spanish classes but i have been watching netflix original anime dubbed in spanish because it's like you know who doesn't want to watch cartoons dubbed in another language it's a lot better (laughs) for me than you know watching a movie that isn't in spanish in another language anyway i watched this netflix original anime movie called words bubble up like soda pop (laughs) yeah it's really actually enjoyable um it's very like the art style was really I don't know, kind of fresh, cool, like, minimalist, like, sort of a style, while also feeling very, like, lush in a way. I don't know. I don't know how to explain the art style very well, but it was definitely not, like, the typical, like, anime style you usually see. Um, It's about these two teenagers who meet over the summer and have a crush on each other, but don't say it till the very end basically uh one is this very very awkward teen who is incapable basically of talking about himself or things in any other form than writing haiku (laughs) uh and so he like is constantly sharing haiku to social media to his like five followers versus the girl lead who is a social media influencer who's just like all about finding everything cute in the world like i said it's very slice of life very you know fun summer i feel like um after your name made like every dollar at the japanese box office (laughs) um, yeah there's been like this whole slew of like high emotion teen like romances yeah, and I wouldn't even call this one, like, that high emotion. I mean, yeah, there's some emotional parts, because part of the subplot is they both work with senior citizens, and they're trying to get... They're trying to find a copy of this old man's lost record that was of his late wife. I would say that's, like, the biggest, like, emotional pool there. But yeah, it's kind of like a a carefree, like... I don't know, in a way, it kind of feels very much like a teen, like, Gen Z movie in the way that social media plays such a huge role, and it's not, like, demonized or horrified or anything, which was really interesting to me. Like, everybody was on their phones all the time, 
and it was only a joke that people were like, get off your phone. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it was it was interesting. I really enjoyed it. It almost kind of veered on the side of, like, a manic pixie dream girl story, but, you know, we talked about how we have no fear of quirky and twee stuff, and I don't have a fear of that so long as, you know, that's not the only point of the female character, which it's not. Uh, so yeah, I, I'd recommend that one if y'all are into, you know, just passing summers of a couple of teens. It's nice. The other thing I watched was Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Hell yeah. Yes, I really, really, really enjoyed it. It might be uh, one of my favorites of the year. It's kind of a movie that they just went all out. They just put everything. No idea was too wild. And I just love that. It's so dense with just out there ideas. Loved it. I need me a friend like that to go on adventures with. And then to shift gears, I watched The Wailing for the first time. I absolutely loved it. It's very dark and very grim. But it's a really good allegory about like Korean history basically, and the imperialism that Korea has, like, faced. So, of course, it's, like, really scary. Yeah, it was really great, though. There's so many parts of that movie that it's just like, oh, this is so good. Yeah, I feel like saying too much about that movie kind of gives away some things, but it's one of those movies where there's no set, like, explanation for what's going on like you think there is but it's all very vague so you know there's just this evil um which makes it all the scarier honestly is really good also really recommend that one and the last thing i watched was um don hertzfeld's 2012 uh movie it's such a beautiful day like his first oh, it's feature so length yeah, I absolutely love that one. I mean, his work is just always great. Uh, you will only get older. Yeah, <laughs> yes. But Bill, but Bill. Uh, Bill. <laughs> it's so good. Have you seen it, Brandon? Yeah, I saw it a, a long time ago. I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't make our uh, best of the decade list. It should have been in the running. Yeah. Oh my God, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Major oversight on our part. I feel like that one gets... Like the least amount of attention compared to his like ongoing, uh, what's his like apocalyptic one that he's been doing for years now? Something about the end of the world. Oh, is it the world of tomorrow? Right. Yeah, that no. one. Yeah, yeah. I kind of prefer it's such a beautiful day to what I've seen of that one, but it's obviously an incomplete like ongoing work, so I might be selling that a little short. Yeah. But uh, it's such a beautiful day is such a, like a perfect encapsulation of everything he can do to sort of like the crudeness yes. of his style and the like crudeness deeply of his humor. disturbing <laughs> humor of his work yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, he's one of those people that is just like, you're my kind of weirdo. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's just that, that weird, weird, weird kind of dark humor that I'm just so on the wavelength of love it. That is another one that is on uh, Criterion's Art House animation right now. Nice. So I've just been kind of slowly, slowly checking away through that. It's kind of hard because 
you know, sometimes you're like, I don't want to watch anything depressing. And whenever they group or anybody groups like art house animation together, it like inevitably is like a bunch of things that's going to make me cry (laughs) or things I've already seen. Um, Like I can only watch, no, I can watch Alice like a limitless number of times, but you know, sometimes I want to watch something new. Yeah. So what have you been watching, Brandon? Well, I've watched two very strange films last week, um, and they have nothing to do with each other, just the fact that they're both very odd. I watched the new musical Annette from Leo Carax, or how do you pronounce that name in French? That is on Amazon Prime and in theaters right now. It stars Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard. It is a bug nuts, like, go for broke movie the way you would expect a musical from the Holy Motors guy to be. Boomer, I think you would absolutely hate it. Oh, I have no doubt. I've avoided it. (laughs) Okay. It leans into something that you pointed out about musicals um, as we've talked about them kind of extensively this year. But I think it does it to the point where it's a joke. This is based off a rock opera concept album from the group Sparks that uh, they decided to adapt into a movie instead of actually making an album. Okay. Well, I do love Sparks. Okay. So that might help. But continue. <laughs> so only the opening and closing songs sound like Sparks, like pop songs. The rest of it is in this like modern opera where it's like not catchy at all. Um, it's just like storytelling set to like, I guess you could call them melodies. It's just set to music. But what they do is they announce everything the character is doing, feeling, and their function in the uh, in the story are just blatantly announced directly to the audience um, without any nuance. And it's done so consistently and so over the top that it feels like a joke about itself. Where like a character will be like, I am the accompanist. I am not the talent. I have the technical expertise. I am the accompanist. I want to be a conductor, but I am not a conductor yet. I'm just an accompanist. Oh my god. It sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> but it's absurdly done, and it's I think has a humor about itself, and it's like aware that it's doing that. And, you know, it is a big budget movie with movie stars in it who have like explicit sexual encounters on screen. Um, They have a child about halfway through that is played by a puppet from when it is a baby until when it is a seven-year-old. There's all these, like, really um, eerie motorcycle rides late at night that are, like, double exposed uh, with different images of this near-future Los Angeles uh, that they're inhabiting. And there's these, like, cheap parodies of Entertainment Tonight-style, like, gossip television. It is a wild movie that is two and a half hours long and has no room for nuance because it tells you exactly what it's doing at all times. Cause it's an illustration of a rock album. Um, so like, there's not really a lot of room for it to like, not spell it out at the end. I was just thinking to myself, like I've been questioning whether this is good, weird or just weird, weird the whole time I've been watching it. And at the end, I was just kind of like, had to make peace with the fact that it didn't matter what the answer was. I was like, I just enjoyed the fact that something this expensive was allowed to be this odd. You know, if we're going to spend Jeff Bezos's money on useless bullshit, I guess it's better this than like rocket fuel or whatever the fuck else he's doing to like boost his ego right now. This description that you have given of, given of this movie has been a wild ride. 
Like, um, I've <laughs> yeah, been, so I've, weird. I've been imagining myself yeah. <laughs> as like Ralph Wiggum in like the the testing room, right, where they're turning the dial, and it's like, turn it up if you like this, and turn it away if you like the if you don't like this, and I've just that dial has just been going back and forth this whole time. <laughs> I'm like, hmm, a child that's a puppet, yes. Oh. Oh, all of this talk about accompanying. No. Um, I don't know. Maybe. I still haven't seen Cats. And I feel like if I'm going to have my mind destroyed by a musical, it should be that one first. Have you re- have you watched the trailer for Cats? Yes. Okay, you know how that doesn't look like a real movie? Like, it looks like almost like a 30 Rock joke. Yeah, And not like a real thing. Yeah, it definitely Watch does. the trailer for Annette. It's the same vibe. <laughs> like, it doesn't seem like a real thing that exists. Okay, fair enough. In the whole two and a half hours the movie goes on, it it never loses that feeling, but, you know, it's also, there's nothing else quite like it, so I just kind of respect its audacity, and especially right now, I'm not going to movie theaters, so I'm, like, only watching stuff that's available for streaming, and uh, you don't get a lot of, like, swing for the fences, weird-ass shit (laughs) like this uh, when you're just kind of, like, catching up with what falls through the cracks, so... I appreciated it, its place in my life right now. And the other one that I watched is also deeply strange. And I don't know that it's as great as some of its champions will say, but it's definitely worth looking at. Um, it's called The Astrologer from 1976. It's a fairly notorious film. I don't know if y'all are familiar with it. No. Mm-mm. No. So this is kind of like a Neil Breen or like Tommy Wiseau situation where like a man who is like mysteriously wealthy, he he's... Claims that he's a self-made millionaire who um, came up by developing an early computer program in the 70s that could run astrological charts for businesses so they could base their business decisions off of his understanding of the star alignments. This is a real life person. His name's Craig Denny. And he did own that business, but anyone who knows him finds that claim dubious that he made like millions of dollars off of this astrology computer program. But he did fund a very expensive movie about how great he is called The Astrologer um, in that kind of Tommy Wiseau, Neil Breen tradition. Like this movie is all about what a badass he is. It starts with him playing a version of himself. His still his name's still Craig. It's his last name's changed from Denny to something else. And he starts as like a carny con man who um, is in and out of jail his entire life who then discovers that his like con manning, like reading people's tarot cards isn't entirely fake. Like he actually does have a knack for astrology and uses that real life skill to become a millionaire as he claims he does in real life as well. And then um, eventually make a movie about how awesome he is. So within this movie, there's a movie called the astrologer, um, that is very successful and makes him millions of more dollars than he already had. What's different about this versus like the Neil Breen and Tommy Wiseau style of like, so bad it's good testament to its creator's own ego. Uh, in this case, the money is on the screen. Like this movie goes to Kenya and Tahiti and just all over the United States. And there's like helicopter shots and like underwater photography, um, tons of extras and it's a movie no one's seen or heard of because even though he was blowing all of this money, he included Moody Blues songs on the soundtrack and on the poster. 
He like advertised like music by the Moody Blues, but didn't actually have a contract with them or pay them any money. Um, so it is hmm. impossible to legally distribute right now, um, unless you <laughs> cough up a bunch of money to whatever record company owns Moody Blues music. You know, like Agfa doesn't have the money to like bankroll that. So it's been in like distribution limbo that you'll hear every few years. Uh, the greatest midnight movie you've ne- you'll never see because it's illegal to show it will pop up like across the country and someone slipped it through the cracks this year and it ended up on YouTube in a pretty good scan. Um, and you can pretty easily access it now because of that leak. Like it, you can download it pretty much anywhere you can download mm. anything. And it is very strange. It's one of those things where I, I would just encourage you to read articles about Craig Denny and the making of this movie to sort of get it. Cause I could just go off like a list of trivia right now. Like he cast his real cousin as his love interest and like makes out with her a bunch. What? Uh, Oof. He also um, may or may not have faked his own death. Uh, Cause the only records of his death are in a lawsuit. There's no like obituary or like legal records claim like showing that he's actually dead. And he bragged about how he would eventually fake his own death and leave the country. And people think that's like actually plausible that he might've done that. Hard to tell what's apocryphal and what's not because so few people involved with the filmmaking are around to tell these stories. And it's also just insanely edited. Like, that's the part that really kept my attention. I don't know that I love it as much as some of its, like, biggest champions, but it is edited like a Russ Meyer movie almost. Like, constant cuts, so many setups, and just jumps to like clashing visual information that your brain has to piece together as it like jumps years ahead of time. You're like, Oh, I guess that's where he is in life and in the world. Now Um, you can barely keep up with the pace of the thing. It's a wild ride and it's, you know, out there if you're curious about it in a way it's never been before. I like to have a bowling alley. And then he says, I want a health spot. And then I said, we need maid's quarters. I forgot how many kitchens, 10 kitchens. We have a sushi bar. Two tennis courts, one will be a stadium court, full-size baseball field, which will double as the parking lot uh, when we have parties. But this is our ice skating slash roller rink. The children have their own wing. They have their playroom with a stage where they can perform and do their whatever they do. Okay, this is the staircase that I would come up if I was going to visit the children. So tonight we are discussing the 2012 documentary Queen of Versailles, uh, directed by Lauren Greenfield and starring Jackie and David Siegel. I saw this movie for the first time after I had surgery on my arm uh, in 2017. And in the four years since then, I have probably watched it another five or six times. I think it's quite possibly one of the funniest fucking things I've ever seen. It is about a woman who grew up in relative poverty, earned a degree in engineering, and got a job at IBM before working there for about a week and deciding it wasn't for her and becoming a a supermodel or a model, uh, eventually becoming Miss Florida. And after at least one failed marriage, ended up becoming the third or fourth wife of a man named David Siegel, who is about 
uh, 50, 40 to 50 years older than she is. And he made his money on timeshares. And the film sort of charts their initial plan to build a recreation of the Palace of Versailles as a private home for themselves in like Kissimmee, Florida, like near Disney World. Um, and then with the 2008 financial crisis hitting the business suffering, David's house of cards of mortgages of uh, mortgaging Peter to pay Paul collapsing in on itself and the family struggling to get by with still more money than any of us will ever see in our lifetimes. And Jackie is the woman at the center of all of this, who it seems like at least at one point might have had a good head on her shoulders, but her brain has just turned to complete mush in the intervening decades of having children that she did not have to raise herself. Um, She has at the point of the film seven uh, of her own children, as well as her niece, who she adopted out of that child's poverty, which is John Quill, who's also the hero of the film as John Quill uh, manages to give us a look at both sides of the poverty line. I kind of, I, I just want to hear some initial thoughts from y'all about what you thought about this one. Oh man. It is at times a hard watch because of how much my eyes were about to roll out of my head. <laughs> like, Oh, we're just struggling so hard. We might have to rent a smaller home. Oh no. We only have seven staff members i'm like really really (laughs) even their driver is a millionaire yeah even their driver is a millionaire (laughs) uh that was wild yeah i struggle a little bit with like the short and fruit appeal of this even though i like the movie a lot like a lot of it wasn't funny to me just because they're so vile and they're fine like the economy collapsed and they're still you know, at the end of the movie, gonna be okay. Like, they still, they bought the house back and are supposedly gonna complete it next year. The house still is not finished, but they have it again. (laughs) And right now we're in the middle of another economic collapse because of, like, the pandemic. So, you know, they've survived at least two pretty significant blows. um, And they're they're still fine. (laughs) Like, they have more money than anyone should possibly have. Yeah, I understand that. I, it was a different time when I first saw it. It means something a little different to me, but you're right. I still thought it was funny in a lot of ways, but in other ways, I was like, ugh. Like, my sympathy to those nannies, even though there are four nannies, to eight children, which is wild to me. I'm like, that's a two-to-one ratio. That sounds nice. But it's just kind of like uh, these nannies who live in literal playhouses and closets. Yes. Yeah, I feel like... That's supposed to be like an ironic visual gag almost, but it's so fucking deeply sad, that image it of her is. little house that she has. And she's talking about how much she loves it because it's away from the main house. So she yeah. gets a break from these horrible children. <laughs> or there's the uh, interview with the nanny who says she hasn't seen her own child since he was a little kid and now he's an adult. Yeah, she hadn't seen her own child in like 17 years. They could afford to fly her her home anytime they want to. Like, give her a fucking week off to go see her kid. But yeah, they probably don't even know that. Like, they probably even heard that complaint from her because you know they just don't take care of the people that work for them. Much like they don't take care of any of their property or any of the animals they own or anything else. I didn't even know she had a family. 
when yeah. that one child is like, I didn't even know we had a lizard. It's truly yeah. one of my favorite parts of the whole film. And I know that it's upsetting and horrible, but so here are the, the key moments that I stand out that stand out to me that I think about all the time. First, how much dog shit there is everywhere. Those dogs <laughs> are yes. completely yes. untrained. <laughs> I was they about never to say. let them outside. How horrible that all is. There's the scene where Jackie is showing the incomplete uh, Versailles house to one of her colleagues or friends or whatever. And um, she they're going up the, the stairs and she's like, this is the staircase we would take if we were to visit the children. Yes. I love that she's planning to have a wing for the children away from her. I have my doubts about whether or not Dave knows all of his children's names. He probably uh, yeah. for sure does not know Jonquil's name. Oh, he's got to despise her. Oh, yeah. Especially because we know, based on what his adult son tells us, that his stepmother, who I guess was Dave's second wife, just threw those kids out of the house and he had, you know, he had no objection to it. So we know that Dave doesn't give a shit about even his own children, much less other people's children. And when Victoria confronts him at the end of the film, he is completely unmoved, as if he has no idea who she is. Also, did y'all know that she died of a drug overdose? Yes, I I was aware. I didn't know if that was going to be something we were going to talk about. I was like, yeah, that makes so much sense um, in context, uh, which is horribly depressing as well. But Wait, was that Jean Cole or was that the oldest daughter? That's the oldest daughter. Okay, Victoria. Okay. Yeah, yeah okay. Victoria. And you really see her change the most as well over mm-hmm. the course of this because she's like 12 or something when the movie starts and like 15 maybe when it ends when yeah she's and i mean she's so to close to john quill yeah <laughs> john quill trying to adjust herself on that floaty in the pool i'm sorry not to just immediately whiplash back to like the things oh that no I find no hilarious, yeah but there's also the fact that even though like jackie cannot even get those children together to sit at the table for their father's birthday (laughs) she has this idea she's like oh this is the big window where every night we'll gather and we'll watch the olympics over disney world like you can't even get them to have dinner with their father on his birthday you can't it's also like 9 p.m and she's like pilled out and barely coherent (laughs) it's not a healthy functional idea when she has it no it's so dark it seems like the middle of the night and they have yes. like just regular tapered candles like you would put in like a, you know, if you were having a romantic candle at dinner, those are just like stuck in the cake. And what really strikes me about that oh, scene that as chicken. well oh, God. is that all of that money, all of that money, so much money and not an ounce of class. There's yes. no table manners. Everything is excess. The only time we ever see anybody eating, they're always eating McDonald's. They're always eating with their hands. And so when they try to have this nice dinner, it's like shocking to believe that they could ever host, you know, a dinner for like, or a party for the, you know, Miss America or whatever, because everything is just, their house is full of dog shit. It's full of dead animals that were pets for the children that didn't even know that they had them. Just unbelievable. Those are the moments that really stand out. Although to me, the funniest moment, the moment that really sells it is when Jackie goes to visit her childhood friend. She goes to the Hertz rental car counter and they give her her keys and she's like, what's my driver's name? It's like the only 
true encounter that anyone in this family has with a normal person ever in this entire runtime. It's just like this one guy who just like honestly can't believe what he's hearing. It's like she spoke to him in ancient Greek. He's so dumbfounded by what she said. Uh, We do get another interaction with the real public when we watch his son bully people into buying timeshares they can't afford. Oh my god. Which funds this uh, disgusting lifestyle that we've been watching for the rest of the film. It's kind of funny how little time we actually spend in Versailles because, you know, it is an incomplete building that no one inhabits. So we get that initial tour, but most of the film is in their, like, in the meantime mansion and in this, like, hideous condo tower in Vegas, which is a very funny, like, portrait of America. Usually it's, like, New York City is the East Coast and L.A. is the West Coast. In this case, we have, like... Orlando and Vegas, which I feel like is a more honest version of the country we live in. Um, <laughs> yeah. Very gross kitsch all the way down. Yeah. I think one of the moments that really got me was her thinking that $5,000 would save her friend's childhood home. It felt like such like a, how much could it cost? It's one banana. <laughs> Right. <laughs> it is it is one of her moments of kindness. And I think what we yeah. understand is that like the lady was just like one behind on like one or two payments. Like she was only she only owed yeah. seventeen hundred initially is what she says on the phone. So I can see Jackie at least thinking she was doing the right thing. But yeah, her brain is just completely soft. There's, you know, no matter how bright she was in her youth, and we do get to see, like, the people that she knew in her youth talk about knowing her and how they always Mm -hmm. knew that she would go far, but this, like, life of luxury, and as you said, Brandon, like, the pills have just, like, reduced her brain to fucking mush, where she's like, I didn't know that we bought this house in cash and mortgaged it. Like, it's every single little bit of it is just Dave doing, like a giant Ponzi scheme. Mm-hmm. And she basically says she has no idea how it's constructed. I guess when I watch the movie, I'll find out what our finances are like. Yeah. She has no clue. Yes. He doesn't talk to her about it. Cause that's not woman stuff. Yeah. Also her, her compulsive shopping is, is shocking as well. Oh my gosh. That was also a moment that like, I got a guilty giggle out of. When she was cramming her SUV with Christmas gifts at Walmart. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's for the dogs. The dogs love it. And when the, 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 their, you know, household staff brings in the bicycle to a garage full of unused bicycles. Bicycles. Yeah, that's yeah. the kind of stuff that I'm like, God, this is depressing. And, <laughs> and part of it is that, like, there's no way that that community that they live in, that those kids are riding their bikes around. Right? No. None yeah. at all. So obviously there's nowhere for these kids to go on this bikes, these bikes. There's no reason for them to have them. And yet it's such like, you know, it's part of Jackie's idea of what she wants to provide her children, what childhood is like, that she is just completely lost touch with every bit of reality, just every little bit of it. But yeah, I mean, again, I don't, bl- I don't think that obviously the children are not to blame for the situation that they're in, but they are horrible. They're being raised with these values, so we know that they will do damage later in life unless they have, like, a really harsh, like, reality check about how most people live once they get out of this household. Yeah, that's what John Quill was for. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that uh, they're softly 
neglected. Like, they spend very little, if any, time with their parents. They just have nannies who are just going to go along with, like, whatever they say. No boundaries, like, barely hang out with their parents until the end when they've, like, dismissed most of their nannies. Like, Yeah, the one time we ever see any of the children being disciplined, it's one of the sons, it's one of the boys, and he's not being, like, given a talking to by his parents. It's one of the nannies Mm -hmm. who's like, you already had week-long detention. Why do you have detention on the weekends now, too? Yes. So it really only hints to yet another larger part of, like, what life must be like for these children that this boy, now that he's no longer going to private school that they were paying for, he's going to public school. And so what does that mean? You know, now he actually has to face consequences for his actions. So clearly he's some kind of like, he's probably just a little rich asshole. And so now that he's in public school and he's being called out on that, he doesn't care. And his parents aren't disciplining him at all either. Not to sound like my own parents who are always complaining about that. But like clearly, you know, these children are just, they're just feral. They're wild. Yeah. I think there's a difference between discipline and boundaries and a lot of other people. Like, healthy discipline and boundaries is different from the common idea of discipline and boundaries. And just the fact that these children have, well, other than Jonquil, have ever encountered either. Yeah, they're just raising themselves with nannies who only vaguely (laughs) know how to stop the madness. And I think what we're doing right now is, like, kind of incredulously gawking at this behavior and this sort of, like, there are people like this um, kind of, like, wow factor of, like, what the movie's doing. And I think what's interesting about that is, like, so much of it is presented as what I think is reality TV filmmaking. Like, it's kind of surprising that this was even a movie in the first place. Like, it, it almost feels like it should be a reality TV show. I, yeah. I think Jackie is on below deck now, you know, wine and pilling it up in her best uh, sub Real Housewives manner that she's been able to pull off on TV. Um, that's like a perfect fit for her. I was going to say, it felt like this whole movie, like, that's what she was trying to audition for. Like, she wasn't taking this seriously as a documentary. Like, even the whole rental car thing kind of felt like just trying to be a reality TV personality. And, like, the rental car guy was like, what are you trying to pull? <laughs> like, what is this? And she succeeded. Like, the audition worked well. She's on TV now. Yeah. Um, and the movie is kind of, like, quotable in the way that, like, character-based documentary, like, maybe, like, Grey Gardens would have been in the past. There's even the uh, flag-waving scene. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Oh God, this is so... It's very much <laughs> about, like, America's moment. crumbling. And, you know, I think people treat the Real Housewives in that way, where, like, that is you know, specifically like gay pop culture now is like people quote characters from those shows. What I think is interesting is that the director is also doing a whole other thing on top of that, where like Lauren Greenfield's background is in fine art photography and portraiture. Um, And she really likes to photograph people in their spaces. It started in California, just filming, not filming, photographing rich kids like in their bedrooms and just being like, this is what a rich teen bedroom looks like almost like an anthropological view of like that culture. And she's totally doing that here. And you get a lot of fine art slideshows mixed in with like the reality TV moments. 
And it feels like the movie's doing two things at once with that. And I guess I was like less amused with the reality TV stuff than I was like sort of like wowed by the anthropology of it all. Like the uh, just like photographing someone in someone ridiculous in their ridiculous space, uh, just posed with all their garbage. (laughs) I I found that like to be like maybe the more interesting track out of the two. Yeah, it's really cool to do an anthropological view of rich white Americans because so often, you know, it's anthropological study is about like, oh, the other. So, I mean, to have these people who think that they're totally normal, totally just the way to be, to be othered in this way is, yeah, absolutely fascinating. <laughs> Uh, for me, like, the anthropological element is, like, it's not indistinguishable, but, like, cannot be extracted from the the point and laugh elements of it. Uh, and maybe that's just me. But there's something about the gaudiness that, as an anthropological survey, if we're going to think of it in those terms, if it were not making fun of them and making fun of itself it would be unpalatable to me, you know, because I've bussed tables at a country club and I have worked at the front desk of like a title agency as a temp and dealt with like rich real estate agents and the extent to which the absurdly wealthy like view themselves, the importance that they apply to themselves. It's very frustrating to deal with. It's not, Oh, it's it's not funny. It's, it's, you know, and that's that's above and beyond just like working in retail with everyday people like there's a there's a particular sententiousness about people who really think that they make the world go round that were you know yeah. born on third and think they invented baseball you know they're so rich that they think that they're smart when even in this film Dave Siegel admits that he made all of his money off of stealing someone else's idea even when his mm-hmm. own son is like, my father built all of this. It's like, oh yeah, this guy came to me and asked to buy some land. I asked him what he was going to do with it. And when he told me, I did it instead. And now I'm going to build the ri- the biggest home in America. It's like he blatantly you know, says from the outset that he has no original ideas. The only original idea that he had was to mortgage everything to make more to turn the money into more money and that eventually just collapsed like a souffle and so to have this sort of uh exploration of this family without the elements that also make them look like cartoonish buffoons especially because you know so much of mean comedy is making fun of like rubes and and poor rubes and these people are not poor they're rich and that's the only reason the comedy works it's punching up yes yeah and so to me those two things are are inseparable from one another the that it has to have this mockery of these completely self-important gas bags in order for our understanding of them seeing themselves that way to be palatable. And the movie doesn't have to try that hard to make fun of them. Like it plays a little ironic, like harpsichord over the soundtrack to like, you know, <laughs> yeah. make it try to sound fancy. 
so but like good. all you need is that sound compared with the image like e- even their version of versailles if i caught this correctly like they're not modeling it after the actual like original building they're modeling it after no. this replica of it that he saw through his hotel room in vegas they're modeling it after the paris hotel in vegas the paris hotel and casino which is oh right like that's just so much, a whole other level of tacky i'm like oh my god but with a baseball diamond yeah or like when she's trying to throw um, her power around, she'll be like, uh, I, I want 50 chicken nuggets with all the sauces uh, as like her like showing off for the camera. Like they're giving Greenfield a lot to work with um, as far as just like making them look ridiculous. And, you know, this isn't even as grotesque as that house is. Like, I don't think this is even like the biggest swing, like waste of money um, that we've seen from rich people, you know, putting up a testament to their own ego, like. I think Jeff Bezos going to space a couple I weeks think ago. Was will never try to go to space. Right. I was going to say, we just talked about <laughs> wasting Jeff Bezos's money. It so. is on my mind all day, every day right now, um, which I hate. Uh, but I'm just like, God, what a yeah. waste of money um, and resources. I don't even want to know how horrible his house looks. Like, like we keep saying, like, no amount of money will buy you class. And all of the people with sort of like taste and interesting style are people who have had to wing it you know (laughs) people who've had to hobble it together do you remember the portrait of them on horseback together where he's like his face is superimposed over like i don't know that (laughs) cracked me up (laughs) oh my god i i'm gonna i'm gonna remember that image to my dying day that and the and the dog coming to the top of the stairs and then barking at its own taxidermied (laughs) cousin yes and i guess like the the anthropology angle of that is like they're such a closed circuit like they don't like you said earlier they don't really mix with like normal people to the point where none of this looks or sounds absurd to them even though she is performing um she Mm -hmm. thinks that she's performing like like american royalty so yeah those two things are not separate like the portraiture of their absurdity and the reality tv like performance of it is I think visually there's a distinction. Like there, there are those like actually nice camera um, stills that we get that would you would see in like an art gallery versus that like digital camera that films most of what you're watching. But I guess I just wasn't laughing so much as I was just like, how did you insulate yourself long enough so that none of this stands out to you as abnormal anymore? And I was just like yeah. fascinated by how all American and just like totally disgusting everything on screen was. Um, and maybe, maybe yeah. this is a symptom of watching this late night by myself and not with a crowd that would be like uproariously laughing along with every gag. Yeah. I, I laugh at this every time I laugh more <laughs> every time. It's like a, it's like a blooming onion that continues to unveil more of its beauties to me. I guess that's why I cited gray gardens earlier too. Like yes. I find that movie very funny. But yeah. it's just as gross. <laughs> it's just as gross, and it's also I laugh more every time. Yeah. Uh, I remember the first time I watched it. I forget who it was. It was in the other room. Was like, I don't know how you can stand that movie. It's just people like 
shouting at each other. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's so good. This movie has its own little Edie dance scene, which it is does. when, which is not not the probably not the one that you're thinking of, but that when that poor nanny has to get into the Rudolph costume yes. for the Christmas yes. party. Yes, oh. that depressed me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of liked how gleeful she was about it. Yeah. She seemed to be she seemed to be having the best time she had the whole movie. But there is that moment where she's like looking at herself in the mirror and it's just this big these big doe-eyed reindeer eyes staring into themselves. It was yeah. truly masterful. It was a work of art. <laughs> yes. Maybe the difference is like I kind of get the mental decline of gray gardens like on a personal level like i relate to those two characters in a way i probably shouldn't um <laughs> right i think we all do at this point having yeah. been like stuck in our houses with like maybe one or two other people at times it's just you devolve into your own sense of gray's gardens <laughs> yeah i was describing you know my situation over here in quarantine where i w- didn't see anybody at one point for like three months i was like murder face and i had a real Big Edie, little Edie thing going on over here. <laughs> we need to see some people. I mean, yeah, it, it got to the point where, yeah, my niece was just like, oh, you're feral. You're absolutely feral. <laughs> and, you know, just, <laughs> just uh, two calamities away from feeding raccoons over here. <laughs> the thing about Grey Gardens is that the documentary now parody of it is so good that now oh, I can't remember... So- good <laughs> i can't remember what is actually from gray gardens and what is from documentary now like you just described yeah. that raccoon feeding and all i can see is fred armison with the doritos <laughs> yes <laughs> you know this movie would be good fodder for that oh yeah style of parody because you could just insert like almost mad lib style you know any luxuriance you could possibly think of i don't know i, f- I feel like they could very easily just like plug and play uh, jokes about the things they own in this but yeah I, just because it's an anthropological view doesn't mean it's an unbiased one. Oh, <laughs> it's not sure. yeah and i did want to like talk about that about greenfield because or greenfield because i tried to watch uh generation wealth and i could not get through it i did not feel like it was sufficiently critical of what we were seeing and maybe i needed to see it through to the end but my roommate and I tried to watch it when it came out because we both love Queen of Versailles. And about 20 minutes in, we were both like, I do not want to finish this. I'm just upset. I'm just upset at the excess. I'm not laughing at anything. And maybe that colored my view of this. Like, I saw that one first. So, like, I kind of know where she's coming from as an artist because Gen- Generation Wealth is more of like, a career retrospective that like she walks you through her thinking of like who she chooses to photograph and like how she, you know, gets access to these like ultra wealthy circles. But I thought that movie was pretty clear about American excess specifically being this like toxic thing. That's like ruining the world and is built on nothing that will like collapse over and over and over again. But I actually was annoyed with her in that movie for a different thing because she contrasted that like Queen of Versailles level of like waste with her own lifestyle of like back to basics, like kind of folksy living in this like nice house in like the California (laughs) semi wilderness. And it's like, you are also absurdly wealthy. And you know, this like goopy 
getting back to like the true self spiritualism you have is also disconnected from how most of us live. Um, So I was annoyed with her for a different reason in that film, but what I appreciated about it was like the slideshows of her fine art photography were just beautiful to see in the theater. And she definitely captures some like unfathomable glimpses of like American decline that I've never seen through this specific lens before. Um, and you see a lot of that in this film, um, you know, like yeah. Jackie posing in her like beauty pageant sash in, on the front lawn of this like house that's, you know, fallen in, into decline yeah. or like um, Jean Quinn in her like teen girl bedroom with the Slipknot poster in the background and knowing that's <laughs> in like, uh, uh, you know, a mega mansion. Like I like the like fine art world she's coming from and applying that to this like grotesque display of wealth. And th- I don't know, I'm just kind of l- latching onto that maybe because I saw Generation Wealth first. Maybe so. Yeah, you talking about the uh, declining house just remind me of another scene that just cracked me up was, oh, there's so many spiders. Look at all these spiders. And I was just like, <laughs> of course. Like, you're walking through this house that is about to no longer be yours, like marveling at the stained glass window. And then suddenly just, there's spiders. Like, as if, I've never yeah. seen them before in their lives. <laughs> <laughs> this is where all of our marble is stored. Oh yes. god, that pissed me off so much. Oh my god. I also I think yes. I feel like for me, the most tone setting like frame of the documentary is very early on when like these nannies are trying to corral these children and bathe them, and there's like this priceless colonial urn just like precariously mm-hmm. perched in like a corner shelf surrounded by just white towels just you know the kind of plain white towels that you you get at like a hotel room there's so much money and there's not so little personalization and the things that are personalized just reveal that there is so much money and like no sophistication like i'm not gonna carry water for the aristocrats of the days of yore far be it from me to do that but they had you know there was a, a level of sophistication that they at least claimed and attempted to adhere to that Jackie and her camo on camo on camo outfits when she goes to the t-ball games is not bringing to the table. Honestly, that Slipknot poster was like the most like personalized touch in that house. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also her, her scene girl hair. And obviously that influence on the older daughter as well. Uh, once like yeah. the scene girl hair entered the house, it was like, oh, you can do that? Yeah. Oh, to be David Siegel, surrounded <laughs> by boxes of receipts and watching Shrek on TBS while my family <laughs> shrieks around and leaves doors unopen- leaves doors open. The front door. And oh they, my uh, God. they take turns in a procession to try to convince him not to be a miserable fuck. Uh, one at a time, like pleading with him to stop being cruel. Yeah. Um, and he's just as drunk as she is, but he's like more of like a private mean drunk than she is. God, yeah. just so much darkness in that yeah. house. Yeah. The the different, all the sons coming in with their, you know, basketball shorts. Like, I also think that when rich people dress their babies, like <laughs> when I worked at Barnes and Noble, there used to be like a fashion magazine for toddlers, right? Where it's like all this like mm-hmm. tweed and like you know oh, uh corduroy I've seen and like a good good deal of that yes yeah. like the you know <laughs> in person <laughs> jackets for children with like the leather elbows 
you know? And I think that that's possibly one of the biggest wastes of money that I've ever seen. And I don't think that uh, people Uh should do that. But at least those rich people that this magazine was made by and for were doing something other than just like letting their feral children wander around in like just t-shirts and like basketball shorts. Like, I don't think that we saw any of those children wearing a pair of pants that would require a belt during this whole thing, even when they were meeting like politicians and um, not heads of state, but at least like the, the various Miss Miss uh, America con- contestants, just not an ounce of class, not an ounce of sophistication, not the tiniest little bit of table manners, just big red leather couches everybody gets the same yahtzee game for christmas garages full of dog shit and unused bicycles and the only teenager that we see who acts like a teenager other than jonquil and victoria is the son of their driver and their driver has like a little office set up in the dining room of his house uh he comes into the room and he asks his teenage son he's like hey jim did you get a donut and jim's like yeah like it's the beginning of the work day (laughs) like hey do you know there's donuts in the break room like (laughs) i was i just couldn't get over it he's like yeah i I had a donut uh sir it's also like distinctly american like this is the yes sort of general america I'm, i'm even thinking of like Outside of, like, we live in three pretty, like, hipster-prone cities, like, with their own little cultural pockets that, like, try to distinguish themselves from the rest of this country. But the further you get out of, like, the cultural epicenter in these cities, like, once you get to – I'm going to use New Orleans terms because I know we're all familiar with this. But, like, you know, Metairie, like, once you get to this, like, strip mall, shopping mall districts, you literally could be anywhere. You could be in Texas. You could be in Oregon. Arkansas. Yeah, it's all just the fucking same. It's all tasteless, personality-free, nothing. Um, and these people have a lot of it. That's the, like one distinction is they can afford a lot of this like flavorless mush. Yeah, I would say they're like two guns away from being just the most American. <laughs> yeah, I. It reminds me of this, and my apologies to the author. Not that they'll ever hear this because, you know. Um, of who we are and, and the way that the internet works. <laughs> but um, my apologies to the person who wrote this tweet, but it was during like the Tom, whatever latest Tom Brady scandal there was. And somebody was like, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. Giselle living in Tampa is hilarious. And I think about that a lot <laughs> because like when I think of like, you know, rich people in Florida, I think of this and I think about someone like, you know, Giselle Bündchen, who is like a world famous supermodel, so worldly and cosmopolitan, I presume. I mean, I, I've, I've never met the woman, obviously. She could be just as bad as Jackie, but she at least presents this, uh, you know, image of being a world traveler and a cosmopolitan woman. And her being forced to live in Tampa is hilarious to me. But Jackie in Tampa belongs there. Oh, yeah. Yes. I mean, she moved there of her own <laughs> yeah. own accord. Oh my gosh. There or Vegas. I mean, I could see her thriving in Vegas as well. Oh, she'd uh, love <laughs> Vegas. Oh no, she wouldn't. It's too bad for her skin. It's too dry. Oh yeah. She oh, stays in Florida true. because of the humidity. 
because she's so desperately trying not to be treated in for two 20-year-olds. 20-year-olds, yeah. Ugh. Such a funny, fun joke they have between them. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, it's hilarious. It's almost like he totally does not hate his wife. (laughs) Well, what's really sad about that is, like, okay, she's... She's joking with him like, oh, you once told me that once I turn 40, you're going to trade me in for two 20-year-olds, right? And that's like Mm -hmm. a private, like, in-joke that she's trying to establish and make cute, even though she does, like, you know, alter herself to make herself look continually young. Yeah. She is turning it into, like, a cute banter thing, but as he becomes more miserable, as as their finances become troublesome, he won't even do that with her. Like, he won't kind of spar these, like, in-jokes back and forth. Mm -hmm. Like, if she repeats that two 20 year olds gag to him he just kind of grunts and doesn't really acknowledge that she said anything he's just like eh, I'm, I'm watching shrek <laughs> get the fuck out of my office <laughs> yeah so grim i, I, I don't so i don't want to make it sound like i did not enjoy myself watching this i was definitely like jaw dropped like oh, yeah what am i looking at the whole time it's a train wreck for sure yeah but also a sort of hilarious one yeah it's very darkly funny i I get that very engaging even though i'm just like oh you people these people are the worst i would love to see like a follow-up with john quill because there is a moment where she is trying to like elaborate about like (laughs) the distinctions that she has felt as having lived in two classes right as having lived Mm -hmm. in 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 literal dirt poverty and in yeah. you know truly excessive McMansion wealth, and because she's like sixteen, she's not really she's not doing a great job of like <laughs> yeah. explaining that. But I would you know like to hear what her thoughts are as an adult, as someone who could probably better elaborate upon and explain herself. I would be interested yeah. in that. I hope she's okay. Most of all. I really do, too. I mean, I don't think any of them kids are okay, but yeah. Can we talk about how they were talking about their children going to college as if that was a worst case scenario? Yes. Because that was killing me. <laughs> we told the kids they might have to. Okay. They might have to go, to, might have to, go to college. And what was one of the things that struck me as being so funny in that scene is. You know, Jackie is is giving her, you know, talking head confessional about that particular topic in, I don't know, one of the many kitchens in that house. And behind her is like a a votive candle holder, like a five candle votive candle holder that is exactly like one that you could just get at Target. Like she probably (laughs) paid like a fucking fortune for it at you know west elm or Creighton barrel or maybe she just went to target maybe maybe there is no like maybe pier I mean, one is the nicest thing like, Costco in or wherever. yes oh my god uh oh we have to talk about her thrift store volunteering oh my god her thrift store owning yes she's like oh you know i volunteer my time at this thrift store it's like okay you own this warehouse and the goods that you're selling are like used goods from your husband's failed business. That is like the perfect, perfect encapsulation of like the complete detachment from reality of the wealthy where like I, 
this is a weird thing to to relate this to but there was um in one of the later seasons of Mad Men uh John Slattery's character's daughter you know she has all this wealth and at one point they're like we don't even know what to do with her cuz she has no interest in education she's not married she doesn't have a job and she's quote uninterested in philanthropy and it like again i'm not going to carry water for the wealthy of the past they don't need it they don't deserve it but there was a time when like you know the richest men in the world were competing over how many libraries they could build rather than like how quickly they could put advertisements in space and there's still this like vapid lip service attempt to perform some kind of philanthropic endeavor but it's literally just her selling things to people who were laid off by her husband's malfeasance Mm -hmm. that is the real like collapse of the american dream part of this to me yeah also you know talking about wealthy of the past do they not know what happened to louis the 14th like, yeah. <laughs> do, like, do they not know what happened to the people who lived in Versailles? It's a truly delicious irony. Among many. Yeah. Well, the movie is widely available right now, Queen of Versailles. You can watch it on Hulu and Hoopla and Canopy, you know, without any extra fees. And probably, I would think most local libraries have a DVD copy of it. It's definitely like a uh, fascinating portrait of what a fucking awful country this is. <laughs> <laughs> was like my main takeaway <laughs> in all of its disgusting beauty. Oh, we're all crying and laughing yeah. at the same time right now. Oh my god. I, okay, I'm sorry. I know I said I didn't have anything else to say, but when David's adult son is giving that speech to the to the other to the salespeople about selling these timeshares, and he's like, "You are saving people's lives." Like lives. that also. Oh my god is such such an indicator about how the wealthy view themselves, right? And as we have seen the economy collapse around ourselves over and over again over the course of our three lifetimes, right? Like, we have seen, quote-unquote, once-in-a-century storms about every 18 months, and we have seen the, you know, quote-unquote, once-in-a-lifetime-style depressions happen ab- about every eight years, and so you, we have no faith in the system, even though there are people who clearly do and still continue to defend it because of, you know, various lost cause theologies, which are tied to the original lost cause theology in a lot of ways because of sunk cost fallacy. And because, as Steinbeck said, most Americans just consider themselves to be temporarily embarrassed millionaires. We have seen this collapse over and over again and yet these people are so insulated that they think they're saving lives and it's so gross it's so gross and they got away with it they're totally fine now two economic collapses later they're they're still going out there i mean they lost their daughter but that sucks yeah. yes there, it's not with it's there's not a lack of tragedy but yeah also yeah. fuck them Fuck them personally. Yeah, really hope some some sort of illness befalls them. Maybe one that's going around. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's something. He's in an at-risk group after all. So um. I'm gonna guess they have very specific theories about whether or not this is a real thing that's happening right now. So <laughs> that's uh, what yeah. you're banking on. 
Jackie will let them shoot that Botox in her face, but she will not take the vaccine. Exactly. Who knows what's in it? Who knows? It was not very tested. Gosh. Well, next uh, week on this show, we're going to be talking about a different absurd American, Dr. Seuss. I couldn't come up with a better segue than that. I'm sorry. (laughs) We're going to be talking about all the live action adaptations of Dr. Seuss's work on the big screen. So lots of like visually fascinating failures next episode. Including an out-of-season Christmas movie. So, you know, I've really, like, dedicated myself to this show. Because that is, like, my version of hell on Earth. <laughs> is watching Christmas movies <laughs> any other month than December. And that's the kind of work we put in here. That was one of the last things that I saw before I got rid of my Facebook. Which, good luck doxing me now, nerds. <laughs> but, um, was your post about having to pick up the cat in the hat from the library? <laughs> and your embarrassment <laughs> over same? Yeah, I go to the same library every week for to pick up my DVD holds, um, so I end up seeing the same people. I've kind of gotten to know them, at least as like a regular <laughs> customer. Um, and yeah, I was a little embarrassed to have to pick up two Dr. Seuss movies um, in person. <laughs> um, thankfully, I do have a mask covering the bottom half of my face right now, so maybe when this is all over, um, I could just change up my fashion and uh, really throw them off. You got to get them from a different branch, bruh. That's what you got to do. I really should have shipped them yeah. across town in this case. You need a trash branch. Yeah. <laughs> a shame branch. <laughs> the branch of shame. And in the meantime, you can check out our daily movie reviews at swampflix.com. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.